Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This week we discuss something that impacts everyone, the time change. There are state efforts to do away with changing the clocks, but not enough consensus to get it through the legislature. We also check into Chicago, which saw its first blast of cold weather and snow this week. How did it impact migrants, some living outside? Halloween was a raucous time in Carbondale for many years. A street party that brought thousands to the Southern Illinois community often got out of hand. We'll take a look back. A teenager found many people going to food pantries sometimes didn't know how to prepare more nutritious food, so she's doing something about it. Amid Day of the Dead celebrations, a school is teaching students how to honor and celebrate people who have passed on. And a record store reopening in an unconventional spot. We'll have those stories and more coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Well, as daylight saving time comes to an end this weekend, the debate over time changes is heating up once again. Illinois has seen proposals to end the clock adjustments, but nothing has made it through the legislature. Cole Longcore spoke to a couple of lawmakers with different views to get their thoughts. This weekend, you're likely to hear complaints about the time shift. Lawmakers have heard those complaints, too. Nineteen states have passed legislation that would make daylight saving time permanent. And this effort is nothing new. Since 2019, there have been at least five bills filed in the Illinois General Assembly, but none have made it through both the House and the Senate. Highwood Democratic Representative Bob Morgan has brought the issue back again. Well, this is an issue that that I've been troubled by for as long as I can remember, whenever our clocks have to change forward or backward and the adjustment that comes with it. Uh, It became even more acute for me personally when I had children and my my children's internal clocks didn't change with the clocks that we had to manually change. Still, opponents like Senator Craig Wilcox, a McHenry Republican, says he's concerned about children's safety. My number one concern is the safety of children at school buses. And if we make this change um, during the winter months, I asked how many more children will spend additional time at a bus stop in the dark and what do we have in mind for safety measures? There's no clear-cut mandate from the public. A national YouGov poll this year found 62% of those surveyed want to stop the changing of clocks entirely but the polling is split when it comes to which solution is preferred. Of the reasons given for keeping daylight saving time, most indicated later sunsets improve people's mood and allow for increased productivity in the evenings. Supporters of permanent standard time say it is most in line with circadian rhythms and sleep cycles. Wilcox believes that some of the effects of the transition can be personally regulated without a law. I think you, like me, like a majority of the population, tend to have a wake-up time that's relatively structured. But our bedtime is significantly varied, can vary two, three to four hours from night to night. And if we do, routinely on our own, short ourselves an hour, two, three of sleep because of when we go to bed, knowing we tend to get up in the same morning, why is daylight savings fall back or spring forward any different? You know it's coming. Beyond children's schedules, there are various factors, including driver safety and interstate trade. Here's Representative Morgan. We certainly have to be mindful of the impact on rail and flights. Uh, And I think that that would be something, of course, we would have to deal with in in the event of any change uh, to our current system. So that is a concern that we've heard. um, And one of the reasons why I think we haven't been able to find a consensus on this issue yet. 
but it would impact nationally. Um, but another reason why, if we just had a common standard, we would be able to adjust once and for all. Wilcox is skeptical of such claims. And so the stats they provide say that when we do daylight savings, when we fall back or we spring ahead, that all of a sudden, magically on the day after, all these drivers are so tired that we have an increase in uh, accidents on the road. That's their claim, right? That this would eliminate that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. A majority of people routinely remove an hour or two of sleep from themselves and we don't have a tie. So I think those stats are a little out of context without that discussion. This year marks 50 years since then-President Richard Nixon signed a daylight savings law. It was done during a national energy crisis, the theory that it would reduce demand as it would stay light longer in the day. It had widespread public support and was made permanent. But that would soon change amid safety concerns, and Standard Time was brought back a year later, at least for some months. So, even if Illinois agreed to adopt year-round daylight saving time, it's not that simple. Congress would need to okay the change. Still, Bob Morgan says he feels the issue won't go away on its own and that Illinois can lead by example. Uh, but it does require consensus. So I think that Illinois can take a lead and speak with one voice about what would be best for us and join with other states that agree with our, our approach. Um, I think there's an opportunity here, and I do think that this is an issue that's not going to go away. While the time change debate continues, it seems the solution for now is simply to change your clocks. I'm Cole Longcore. The sudden cold and snow in Chicago this week presented some new challenges for thousands of migrants arriving, on top of the difficulties they've had in finding adequate food, clothing, and shelter. But as Michael Puente reports, many of the newly arriving migrants were trying to make the best of it. It doesn't snow in Venezuela, and usually it doesn't snow on Halloween in Chicago, but it did, and Amparo Suarez felt it. No, estoy acostumbrada al frío. She says, I'm not used to the cold, but glory to the Lord, I have to get used to it. Suarez arrived in Chicago just 10 days ago, forced to board a bus after crossing the U.S.-Mexico border to seek asylum. Her 22-year-old son fled Venezuela with her. Once in the city, she was transported to the 4th District Chicago Police Station in the South Deering neighborhood on the east side. With the first snow falling and blowing throughout the afternoon, I found Suarez sitting on a lawn chair near the entrance to the station, dressed in a puffy white coat. While finding food used to be her top priority, now it's finding anything that'll keep her warm. She says they need more coats to keep warm from the cold, hats and gloves for the children and for the elderly. The city has taken migrants to this and 21 other district police stations because there's not enough shelter space. Currently, 12,000 migrants are housed in 24 shelters around the city, but another 2,800 are living on police station floors or in tents outside of them. Amara Hernandez arrived two weeks ago. She says conditions are tough here, but not as tough as in her home country. She says it's difficult, but nothing is impossible. It's for a better future for my family. Despite all the challenges, including the code, Hernandez keeps a sunny disposition and says she has no regrets coming to the United States. I am not sorry because I know that here we can get a better quality of life for our children and our family. But finding adequate food and shelter continues to be a challenge, and this code snap is a shock to people conditioned 
to living in the tropics. Yet many adults and children must stay outside here for long periods of time without winter clothing. But when Juan and Rosa Bazan drive up in their van, young and old flock to it as the east side couple distributes coats, scarves, gloves and mittens to the migrants. This is my second trip today. Yeah. I brought him some stuff earlier because my wife was saying, ah, there's a lot of people out there that are freezing. We bought sleeping bags for the kids. They say, hey, you got blankets, got coats? I said, yeah, I'm gonna go get blankets. I went and got coats. Let's it's go. all the stuff I had at home just laying around. Juan's wife Rosa says she can relate to the migrants. She says she's an immigrant too, but was never in a situation like this and wouldn't like it. Most of the migrants would prefer to work, including Daniel Perez. We really asked President Joe Biden to allow us a work permit. If you don't support us with the permit, you are wasting money. Perez arrived here three weeks ago. He shares a tent draped in tarps with his wife and two other people. But despite the hardships, he has nothing but praise for his new home. Qué lindo país, qué linda ciudad. Muchas cosas maravillosas que tiene. Nos gusta, nos encanta. He says, what a beautiful country, what a beautiful city. Many wonderful things it has. We like it, we love it. Nearly 20,000 migrants have arrived in Chicago since August of last year, straining resources and testing the resolve of a city that is now heading towards winter. Michael Puente, WBEZ News. The state's annual public school report card shows students have largely caught up to where they were before the pandemic in reading, but they're still struggling in math. Sarah Karp explains. Nearly 35% of Illinois 3rd through 11th graders scored at a proficient level in reading and writing on tests given last spring. That's only three percentage points below where students were pre-pandemic. State Superintendent Tony Sanders says it's especially good because Illinois has one of the highest standards for reading proficiency in the nation. Great sign for the state of Illinois that we are really back on track, specifically in English language arts. Math, we still have more work to do. Only 27% of students reach proficiency in math. Sanders says going forward, he wants to make sure students are getting high-quality math instruction. Sarah Karp with that report. Meanwhile, the Illinois Department of Public Health just made it easier for people to check and compare the quality of their local hospitals and the overall health of their communities. The state just launched a revamped version of the Hospital Report Card website. It tracks 150 data points for hospitals across Illinois, things like births, deaths, patient satisfaction, and staffing needs. Ryan Denham spoke to the agency's Shanira Alou, who is the Division Chief of Patient Safety and Quality. Alou says there is a connection between transparency and patient outcomes. They can compare hospitals on a number of different measures, such as the volume of care for a particular health condition, patient experience, staffing, infection rates, and other measures. As another example, the provider community or hospitals would be interested in the compare functionality to see how their performance compares with other similar hospitals. And they can use this information to hopefully inform their quality improvement efforts. 
Um, and then as a last example, I will say that local health departments, researchers, and other groups would really be very interested in our uh, the download functionality on the report card. They would be able to look at trends over time, and they would be able to look at how hospitals compare with each other in a particular jurisdiction or county. And that can really help inform program planning and identifying what hospitals to engage with on certain initiatives. In looking at the, the report card, there's a, a pretty big emphasis on patient experience. You know, would a patient recommend the hospital to family or friends? It's like one of the, the big data points that you pull out. It's like high profile on, on the report card. Why is that so prominently featured? We know from the literature, I mean, there's a lot of different report cards around a nation. And really what's quite salient for uh, patients um, is really that sort of word of mouth or kind of the information about, you know, what their family or friends experience was. And so we wanted to put information that would be of interest and usable for uh, patients. That information comes from something called the HCAP survey, which is short for the Hospital Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems. And it's a national standardized survey and um, it asks this patients who have been discharged, um, things like, you know, how well did doctors and nurses communicate with the patient? And like you said, how likely are they to recommend that particular hospital to family and friends? So on the report card, you can see how much hospitals charge for certain common procedures. So what's your advice on how someone could actually use that? That, that, that charge information uh, refers to what hospitals charge for particular services that they provide. This may be different from what it actually costs the hospital to provide those services. And it also is not necessarily what the patient will end up paying when you consider things, factors like insurance or discounts. But it does give patients a sense of which hospitals um, a particular service might be more or less expensive. And I think this would be of particular interest to those patients who are paying out of pocket. So what if a hospital doesn't like how the data makes it look, or if a hospital thinks there's been an error in the data? What sort of recourse is there for that, and do you expect a lot of that? Well, we actually have safeguards built in um, at different points in the process before the data makes it onto our website. The measures are self-reported by the facilities um, to our vendors, and there, in, it, there are in initial quality control checks that are done at that time, and facilities have opportunities to correct their data, their information before it even makes it to IDPH. And then we do our own internal quality um, assurance process, which culminates in a 30-day hospital preview period that's mandated by law. So during this uh, time, we work with the facilities to address and resolve any data discrepancies. We don't publish any data on the hospital report card until uh, we have resolved those discrepancies. How can more transparency with uh, healthcare data affect quality of care and patient outcomes? Can you connect those uh, dots for us? Right. And we know just from even um, COVID how just having information, the right information at the right time is so important to decision making and by different users. And so really kind of along those lines, the hospital report card uh, provides such data about healthcare facility performance and um, different quality metrics in the public eye. And, um, you know, that is one of the strategies that's been uh, shown to help spur improvements by uh, facilities. It may not necessarily be driven by patient demand, but just by even facilities really being able to compare their performance with each other, um, as I mentioned earlier, and kind of use that information to uh, prioritize uh, their areas for focus. In addition to the hospital report card, you also revamped and relaunched the community map. 
that allows someone to take a more like holistic view at health data across an entire county. So how could that be used? The public health community map would really be of interest to community organizations, local public health providers, researchers, policymakers, and really others. It highlights issues related to health services access, uh, use, and health outcomes at the community levels and any disparities that may exist. It can be used to help identify um, opportunities and priorities to uh, reduce health-related disparities at the community and population level. So we have a variety of different measures on the map related to behavioral health, injuries, diabetes, care, and other chronic conditions, uh, HIV, AIDS, oral health, um, along with emergency department use, hospitalizations, readmissions, and so forth. So we really encourage, um, you know, different user groups to avail of the resource and the um, community map. That's the Illinois Department of Public Health's Shanira Liu, who's the Division Chief of Patient Safety and Quality, discussing the revamped hospital report card website. And you can find it at healthcarereportcard at illinois.gov. Thanks for joining us here on Statewide. We've got more to come. We'll be right back. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Halloween for many people is a special time of the year. The memories of dressing up, getting scared, eating far too much candy can bring a lot of joy. Some communities, though, go above and beyond with decorations, events, and festivities. Sometimes those celebrations have had a history of getting out of hand. Take, for example, Carbondale. Ethan Holder has this report. Back in the 80s and 90s, Carbondale and Southern Illinois University was famous for the Halloween parties that would take place in bars and on the streets. There was a time when the festivities were far more tame. John Jackson, an administrator at SIU from the late 60s till the early 2000s, says the 70s were filled with very family-friendly ways of celebrating the famous holiday. Probably mid-70s when it really started growing and really started taking off. And it was very family-friendly kind of place. It was a lot of people in costumes, mostly SIU students and their guests from other places for the weekend. and. So it really was, it was a pretty nice community kind of thing. The family-friendly celebrations would not last very long. SIU and Carbondale would gain notoriety for its Halloween parties by being featured in an episode of the TV show called That's Incredible from the 80s and being on Playboy's list of the top party schools in the nation. James Wall, a professor at SIU, says all of this notoriety is what spun the partying out of control. Well, they say any publicity is good publicity, but unfortunately, some of the publicity was about Carbondale being this party town. So lo and behold, all these people came to town and tore the place up. While the publicity helped bring in other people, Jackson says the students from SIU were also sending out the word to other colleges in the state. People that would get arrested for really bad stuff, 50% of them were not our students. They would come in here from all over the state, and there were flyers printed 
and distributed at the U of I Champaign, at Eastern, at Western, saying, SIU and Carbondale's wide open, Halloween's back, and come on down. All of this brought in a far bigger crowd and much more chaos. These massive gatherings would foster fights, destruction, and a lot of injuries. Jackson says many people got hurt and one even died. People were getting injured. One guy got killed out on the railroad track. He had an untimely meeting with a train. Thought was probably he was too drunk to know where he was. Other students would get up on the tops of those buildings downtown and some of them would jump into the crowd and then ambulance had to come get them. All of these injuries left many in the community concerned about both their safety and the safety of other SIU students. Due to the worry, the police began to intervene. According to a Chicago Tribune article from 1996, four police officers were injured trying to contain the parties of thousands of people. The partygoers also flipped multiple cars, broke the windows of many businesses, ripped up street signs, and broke through multiple barricades. This forced the city to step in and attempt to kill off the parties once and for all. Wall said the city took multiple actions in the pursuit of creating a safer Halloween experience. Both the city and the university collaborated, I guess, and talked to each other, and the city decided to put a uh, couple of things, a keg ban. You couldn't have a party and uh, go to a, a store and buy a keg. Um, and then they also designated a, uh, a certain area of the city where they made the bars close. The bars were mandated to close at 10 p.m., but some of the students who were at the parties in the 90s saw the flaws in this precaution. I say the city council sucks. Okay. We're, closing these, we're closing the bars at 10, but it means that we get drunk sooner and then we party later. These regulations seem to have little to no effect on the severity of the parties, so the college instituted a fall break in the late 90s and the more popular bars now had to be closed for the entire weekend. After a few years of these new tactics, Halloween in Carbondale not only began to calm down, but it became non-existent. Carbondale has tried to bring back some festivities with pumpkin races, some live music, and family-friendly events. But these do not bring in nearly the crowd that the parties of old did. I'm Ethan Holder. Food pantries help provide meat, bread, vegetables, and more to families in need. But the families don't always know how to prepare the food they receive. A southeast Iowa teenager cooked up an idea to help them. And Rich Egger brings us that story. Aubrey Yacy has been volunteering at food pantries for around four years. She recently moved to southeast Iowa and started volunteering at the Fort Madison Food Pantry about six months ago. Aubrey says she often hears questions while helping customers. What can I do with a cake mix if I don't have an oven? What do I do with beans or, ew, veggies? Gross. I don't want to eat, like, people envision eating veggies out of a can, and sometimes that's not very appetizing at all. It occurred to her not everybody is taught how to be creative in the kitchen with a limited amount of food. And so that's kind of where my inspiration came from. Uh, and so I'm like, why don't, why don't we make a cookbook? As you might guess, the idea of putting together a cookbook is easier said than done. Aubrey had to raise money and come up with recipes, and some of those recipes had to be for people who don't have an oven. They do their cooking in a microwave, a toaster oven, or on a hot plate. Aubrey distributed flyers and got the word out through local media. 
and donations and recipes started coming in. She also got some recipes from home. Her mother buys many of the same foods that are handed out at the pantry. We cook with, you know, a tuna and, and, and you know, canned corn and different things like that. And so my mom has been helping me with, through this whole thing. So a lot of recipes came from her. And then I've had so many wonderful people just come in with stacks of recipes. Aubrey has also found recipes on blogs and websites. The book will give credit to those who've shared recipes and to the online sources. Aubrey tried many of the recipes herself to make sure they taste good. I found crockpot dump cake. That was really easy. You put cake mix and fruit and butter in a crockpot. You just put it out for two hours and... Voila, you've got a delicious dessert. She also found a recipe in a really old church cookbook for porcupines. I looked at that and I was kind of skeptical. I was like, what, what is this? And it was kind of cheesy looking, but I made it. It was actually really good. It's, it's meatballs with rice in it. And then you serve it with this, with this tomato sauce. It was actually pretty good. So yeah, I've definitely found some, some interesting recipes. It did not involve any actual porcupines then? No, no, but the, I think the idea is it kind of looks like a porcupine because yeah. it got that rice sticking out of it. So, no, that was a fun recipe to make. Aubrey collected around 130 recipes and sponsors donated more than enough money to pay for the cookbooks. Lots of people with huge hearts. So the next step was to decide how many to print. That's when she learned the Fort Madison Food Pantry helps about 500 families a month. I, I was shocked, you know, wow. That, that's not 500 individuals, that's 500 families. That's a lot of people. Aubrey is a senior at Iowa Connections Academy, an online public school. She plans to go on to college to study engineering. Through the cookbook project, she learned the importance of adapting. Lots of learning with that because, you know, you have a plan, but it, it never goes the way you want it. And she says you should never give up. Aubrey says the cookbook started out as a project for a scholarship. She applied for the Herbert Hoover Uncommon Student Award in Iowa. Part of the process is to propose a project that impacts the community or a person. Aubrey did not get the scholarship. Initially, she was disappointed. But then I realized, you know, it's, it's not about the scholarship. It's about helping people. And she says that's what's truly important to her. The manuscript has now been sent to the printer. Cooking on a shoestring should be ready by late November. That way, Aubrey can give them to families during December as a Christmas gift. One book for each of the food pantry's 500 families. Rich Egger reporting. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints plans to build a new visitor center in Nauvoo. But some members of the small Hancock County community have concerns about traffic congestion and public safety. Jane Carlson brings us more. It's been 21 years since the LDS Church opened a new temple on a majestic bluff overlooking the Mississippi River in Nauvoo. The five-story limestone building is a replica of the original 19th century temple at the site and has deep historical and religious significance to the LDS Church worldwide, as does Nauvoo. It's a place of discovery, but it's also, for me, a sacred place. I, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the history of the persecution of the saints has a lot of lessons. 
That's Janet Hill. She moved to Nauvoo two years ago from Utah and runs an art gallery in town. Along with other historic sites, the temple makes Nauvoo a destination for members of the LDS Church. Hill is among a growing number of Mormons from across the country who are not only visiting Nauvoo, but making it home. I feel strongly that at, at this point in my life, that my role is to contribute to the community. Hopefully to help heal some of the longtime wounds that have historically stayed in Nauvoo. The proposed visitor center has caused a bit of tension in the community over the last six months, not because anyone is opposed to it, but because of the location. In March, the LDS Church presented a site plan request to the city of Nauvoo to build a historic visitor center and parking lot at the northeast corner of Wells and Young Streets, just down Wells from the temple. Hill says she immediately felt that was the wrong spot for it and launched a petition, not against the visitor center, but against it being there. My whole desire has been to have the uh, LDS Church really examined examine why they feel it has to be there and if there possibly can be another spot. Such centers help explain the Mormon faith to the public. There is already an LDS Visitor Center in Nauvoo that was built in the 1970s. It's down the hill from the temple in Nauvoo's flats and focuses on the history of the church. Susan Sims is the regional communications director for the LDS Church, which is a volunteer position. She says the existing visitor center would stay open. And she says since the project was proposed, the name has changed to the Nauvoo Temple Visitor Center. It's meant to teach visitors specifically about the temple, which is only open to members of the LDS Church in good standing. That means anyone who isn't is turned away from the temple. There was a real need for us to have an interpretive center uh, namely this visitor center, in close proximity to the temple so that we could direct people, well, you can go across the street and here you can learn about this building, you can see a cutout about it, you can see exhibits about it, you can learn about our focus on Jesus Christ. The proposed location is not only in close proximity to the temple, but also right across the street from St. Peter and Paul Catholic Church, diagonal from the Catholic Elementary School, and not far from the LDS Meeting House. It's on a street and intersection many feel is already congested and unsafe, and even more so during church services, weddings, and funerals. The major concerns are pedestrian and vehicular safety and the integrity of the neighborhood, including noise and light pollution and how it would obstruct a breathtaking view of the Mississippi. The original site plan was said to be denied by the city council over those concerns when it was withdrawn by the church. Susan Sims says the church has since satisfied safety concerns with a revised site plan. Uh, we will, at our expense, widen Wells Street, a benefit to the city, at no cost to the city, that will allow parking on both sides of the street and still allow two-way traffic, which is currently not possible. The church will also move access to a parking lot to a side street and work with the city to install crosswalks and make Wells and Young a four-way stop. But others say the town of around 950 people simply doesn't have the infrastructure for it at that location. John McCarty is a lifelong Nauvoo resident. He goes to the Catholic Church and is a former mayor and city council member. He says when the temple was built, the city leaders were told bus traffic would be rerouted to lower areas and up the hill. But as we've seen that forever, we have that sign right there that says bus route, and those are totally ignored 90% of the time. 
McCarty says Nauvoo's roads were built for Model A's, not tour buses. Grain trucks also have to get through town in the rural community. He says putting the visitor center at Wells and Young would drive even more traffic to a side of town that wasn't built for it. The church says it could draw 150,000 people a year. Looking at it, and then when they had some of the numbers saying how many people would use it, you know, the, the red flags go up immediately from living here all these years, knowing that if you, you open one floodgate, you know, it's, it's just going to take over. And McCarty says tourism dollars that come into Nauvoo because of the temple and other sites do not offset what's lost due to so much church-owned property being off the tax rolls. There are also questions about zoning. Karen Erig is a retired English teacher who has lived in Nauvoo for 50 years. She also has served in city government and is opposed to the location. She says after the first site plan was withdrawn, she realized the parcel is actually zoned residential and not commercial or for outdoor museums as originally thought. And so when it came out that this building was going to be built in this location, something in my head clicked. I don't think they can build it there because this is residential. Residential zoning is the most restrictive in Nauvoo and allows only for homes, churches, schools, and museums run by the city. Eric says that zoning was set up by a land use planning facilitator furnished to the city by the church when the temple was being built in 2001. It unfolded that there were meetings about this and yes it should be allowed because it was uh, some sort of an ancillary building to the temple and that it shouldn't be allowed because it wasn't a church and there were not regular worship services in there. The original site plan described the visitor center as a connecting link between historic Nauvoo and the temple to include a lobby, theater, classroom, and gallery. The revised site plan submitted in July was more detailed about the religious importance of a visitor center and the church's religious need for it. And the church's Susan Sims says Nauvoo's residential zoning ordinance includes the language other places of worship. This visitor center is a place of worship because the primary activities that will be engaged in that building are religious instruction and providing information about the beliefs uh, of our faith and the purposes of the temple. The revised site plan also says the church is on board with reasonable accommodations for the health and safety of the community. But any plans to thwart or limit construction of what they consider a vital religious center would trigger the church's rights under a federal law known as the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. The law both allows incarcerated people to worship freely and prohibits governments from unreasonably limiting religious assemblies or structures through zoning. The revised site plan has yet to come to a vote by the city council. Sim says the federal law might not necessarily be invoked if it was denied. But it should be clear to the city council that if they deny a site plan that meets both zoning laws and all other ordinances, it would be illegal for the city council to deny the site plan. The LDS Church held an informational meeting in Nauvoo to share gospel perspectives on the proposed Temple Visitor Center, and another petition is circulating in town, this one in favor of the proposed location. I'm Jane Carlson. There is more to come on Statewide. Stay right here. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. An independent record store is reopening in a rather unconventional location. Holden Kellogg talked with Bob Long, owner of Shandy's Music and More, about why he's restarting his store on a Forgottonia farm. I'm standing on a farm near Cuba, Illinois, population 1400. Cuba is located 66 miles southwest of Peoria, 
and it's where most people would call the middle of nowhere, and also where most people would think there's no place for a record store. But looking to my left, turning onto East Senate Chapel Road, a narrow gravel road, there's a sign for a record store called Shandy's Music and More. Shandy's has been run by Bob Long since 1999. The store was once located in the center of Canton, 10 miles to the northeast of Cuba. Long closed that location in 2016, and that's a long story for another time. The store is back after a long hiatus. Walking into a farm shed with a neon open sign in the window, there's shelves and racks of albums everywhere, with numerous collectibles lining the walls or held within glass cases. When asked what made him originally start Shandy's, he gave one simple answer. Love of music, been around it all my life. Bob says he chose to reopen Shandy's in the unconventional space due in large part from constant online demand from regulars of the shop. People ask all the time, hey, is the store going to reopen? We want some music, so we did it. I know this is your farm, but why this location specifically? Like, looking at it, it's like a machine shed. Yes, it was a building that was on the farm, and we needed a place to open, and we decided to just go ahead and do it here. What has surprised you about being in this location? What surprises me? Nothing. I mean, Canton itself is kind of like a a record store desert, if you will. Do you find yourself getting good business out here? Yes, because even when we were in Canton, a lot of my customers weren't local. We carry a wide variety of stuff, but we specialize in a few things. So we have people from all over travel to shop with us. And do do you find it difficult at all with the store being out here and kind of... I guess what most people would call the middle of nowhere, but... I think it's great. We get a lot of comments. I think when people come here to shop, they make the drive because they want to be here. So it's it's a good thing. All the money we make goes to rescue animals. So while you're here shopping, you can check out some of the rescue animals we have. All of the profits from Shandy's music goes towards an animal rescue he runs right next to the store. Stepping back outside briefly, Bob gives a quick tour of the rescue farm with a few horses, dogs, roosters, a small gang of turkeys that was following close behind us, and a pen with a potbelly pig named Hamilton. Hamilton! Started with dogs, moved on to all animals. We have here on the farm, we have horses, pig, ducks, chickens, geese, turkeys, cats. We've had iguanas, rabbits, snakes, anything people throw out, we pick up, try to find new homes for them. Walking through the store now, Bob gives a tour of all the different sections of CDs and records featuring both well-known names and local artists. I have a lot of local artists, but this is like uh, anything from the 80s. A lot of the stuff was never released, but it's getting put out now. Bob also says a big part of what makes Shandy's unique is the stock of music that's either out of print or just from artists that are plain hard to find in other music stores. Working with fighters, I travel all over. Whenever I'm on the road, I try to stop into record stores and see what's going on. And through the years, I just watch them start declining. There was great, cool record stores, and now it's really hard to find anything that doesn't just have Taylor Swift, Bruce Springsteen, the major artists. You don't find any of the other stuff. 
They're always like, oh, we can order it for you. Go online, but they don't have it in the stores. I like to walk in the stores and look through things, find cool stuff. Most of them don't do that anymore. Shandy's has grown a cult following over the years with people driving from everywhere to stop in and shop, even at this new and unconventional location. And the love doesn't stop there either, and Shandy's has been represented recently at the Spoon River Speedway, with the store logo appearing on a race car driven by a friend of Bob's. The race car was a surprise to me. I train MMA fighters on the side. One of the guys that used to train with us decided he wanted to start driving the car, so he didn't say anything. He just sent me a picture one day, and my logo was on the car. I think the Shandy's logo was kind of a thank you for spending time working with him, being on the team. Bob also says there's a constant influx of stock from other people's collections coming into the store. And after touring the store, I was even able to find some records to take home as well. Reporting for WCBU News at Shandy's Music and More outside of Cuba, Illinois, I'm Holden Kellogg. The state's annual public school report card shows students have largely caught up to where they were before the pandemic in reading, but they're still struggling in math. Sarah Karp has details. Nearly 35% of Illinois 3rd through 11th graders scored at a proficient level in reading and writing on tests given last spring. That's only three percentage points below where students were pre-pandemic. State Superintendent Tony Sanders says it's especially good because Illinois has one of the highest standards for reading proficiency in the nation. Great sign for the state of Illinois that we are really back on track, specifically in English language arts. Math, we still have more work to do. Only 27% of students reach proficiency in math. Sanders says going forward, he wants to make sure students are getting high-quality math instruction. Sarah Karp, WBZ News. Dia de los Motros, or Day of the Dead, celebrations are happening this time of the year. Peter Medlin reports on one Northern Illinois school teaching its students how to celebrate and honor people they care about who have passed on. Turning down the hallway near the Spanish classrooms at Winnebago High School, the lockers have transformed. Golden marigold flowers adorn the swung open doors. Colorful construction paper covers them, along with papel picado, tissue paper with intricate designs cut into them. And inside the lockers, Winnebago High School Spanish 4 students have created altars, or ofrendas, to honor loved ones who've died. There's a picture of me and her when I was like a baby. That's Emma. She's a senior at Winnebago High School, and she's building an ofrenda for her great-grandmother. She passed when I was, like, seven. Besides the flowers and papel picado, they all include pictures of their loved one, a biography they wrote in Spanish, important items, heirlooms, and their favorite foods and drinks. Emma's got a Coca-Cola in there for her great-grandmother. It's a moment where students like her can share a different side of themselves and honor the people they loved and lost. They can be vulnerable in front of their teachers and friends as they stop and look at the locker of friends. I hope that they notice that like, I'm very fortunate that I got to meet a great grandparent. Some people don't. So I hope that they take away that like, if you were in the same situation that you should feel like grateful for it. Andrea Sotelo is a Spanish teacher at Winnebago High School. And she says they've been doing this project for about five years, and this year they have around 45 ofrendas. It's a very personal side of them, and it's, it's a great way to make a connection with them and share with them. Yeah. Um, in the past, every year, I usually put up my own ofrenda in the classroom. So every year, I kind of share with them 
what's on my ofrenda. So they get to learn about me. And so when it comes to this, I think they're okay with sharing with me because I've already shared with them. She says some of her students, many of whom didn't know about ofrendas or Dia de los Muertos before her class, realize it's a slightly different way to look at death. It's not Halloween. It's not scary. It's a way to celebrate the people you loved, who they were, and what they loved about life. That being said, it's hard to talk about death, and so many are still grieving. So students don't have to make their own ofrenda. They can make one about a celebrity, artist, or athlete who passed away, or they can contribute to the community ofrenda they're working on. Zotello guides me through the decorated hallway as students put the finishing touches on their work. They all have to have some sort of candle on them to light the spirit back. You see countless pictures of aunts, uncles, grandparents, even pets. A cross, a microphone, playing cards, a photo of Elvis, a box of pasta, and a Bible. She's got her, um, her aunt's nurse gown, her aunt's glasses, even the keys to her car, um, and then her picture there in the back. She's got some of her old jewelry in here. Pictures from when she was, uh, from years ago, from when she was um, a bowler. She really went all personal with this one, and you could tell it was special to her. On Monday, Sotelo's Spanish students took a trip to the Ethnic Heritage Museum in Rockford to see the community-wide ofrenda buildup. Sotelo says she hopes her students take the lessons of Dia de los Muertos with them after they leave her class. That just because someone you love is gone doesn't mean you stop celebrating their memory. I'm Peter Medlin. The city of Elgin voted to accept a state grant to support asylum seekers living in the city. But it didn't happen without acknowledging some of the controversy surrounding the arrival of migrants to the area. Maria Gardner-Lara has more. Applause broke out when the Elgin City Council voted nearly unanimously to approve the measure. The warm response contrasts with the reception from other communities and local efforts to support new arrivals. Recently, Joliet Township declined nearly $9 million in state funding after vocal opposition to the grant during a meeting of its board. Lori Baker is president and CEO of the Association for Individual Development and a supporter of the grant funding. At the Elgin City Council meeting, she recommended the city reach out to the state. To see if any of those funds that have been refused by short-sighted communities could also be brought here to be able to be added to some of the shelter population that's already being served at Pads of Elgin. Pads of Elgin serves those experiencing homelessness in the area. The city of Elgin will funnel the $1.27 million state grant to three nonprofits in the area. And while no one against the grant addressed the council during public comments, some council members spoke to the concerns they hear from constituents. Some critics say the funding ought to address problems like poverty instead of going towards new arrivals. Council member Tish Powell says issues like poverty are legitimate, but even so, she says it's not the, quote, oppression Olympics. Poor people that currently live here in our community and need help don't have to feel like they are in battle with poor people that are asylum seekers and need assistance as well. Powell says it's not about figuring out who's worse off and justifying support for one group over another. We're all humans. We all deserve respect. We all deserve food and shelter and basic needs. And that's what this funding is helping to provide for folks that are coming here with basically nothing. And she says the United States has the capacity to support everyone. If we could send billions of dollars over to other countries that are war-torn, it really shouldn't be that hard for us to help folks that are here. 
Council Member Rosa Maria Martinez says she hears frustration from some in the undocumented community. It's very hard for undocumented people who have been waiting for so long. I know in instances that they're doing it the right way, as people say. It takes 15 to 20 years, and I can see where they're pretty upset. She says they've lived and contributed to the city for decades, but have no pathway to work authorization and its benefits, like Social Security. She says a different treatment of asylum seekers and undocumented immigrants highlights what many consider a broken immigration system. We've been going through more presidents and everybody promised to fix it and it hasn't been fixed. And she says there's also misinformation floating around. The first mistake they make is when they start saying things about illegal aliens. You and I, we know there's no such thing as an illegal alien. Is there undocumented people? Yes. Is there asylum seekers? Yes. And people need to educate themselves with the difference between one or the other. A person who is undocumented can be someone who overstayed their visa or who entered the U.S. outside of a border checkpoint. Whereas migrants that arrive by bus from Texas, they were processed at a checkpoint. They've been granted permission to pursue their case for asylum while in the U.S. And though they're granted a stay, it doesn't provide work authorization automatically. Across the nation, governors, including Illinois, have called for the Biden administration to expedite work visa applications for asylum seekers. In the meantime, Karina Nava, Elgin's assistant city manager, says it's in everyone's interest that migrants receive assistance until they have the means to support themselves. If we don't help them, we're just going to exacerbate the issue of, for example, homelessness, of people need food, people need services. The agencies are already trying to help them, so this funding is just going to help make that go a lot farther. Nava led the city's grant process. The grant is part of $41 million in state funding awarded to communities to support the new arrivals. It's estimated about 1,000 asylum seekers reside in the Elgin area. Amaria Garner Lara. We're out of time for Statewide. Thanks for being with us this week. And join us next time for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find our episodes through this station's website at nprillinois.org. Look for us where you get your podcasts and through the NPR app. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations. Bye.